was your Sabbath so far? Wonderful. Amen. All right. I'm waiting for the PowerPoint to get ready because I am a visual learner and I'm pretty sure some of you are. So some of it I'll be talking and the other part is going to be on the PowerPoint. So you have two of your senses working for you. All right. The title of today's um, sermon is titled The Christian Journey. What do you think of when you think of a Christian journey? Trials. What else? Detours. Detours. All right. Our lives are on a journey. We are working towards our prize. Because when you think of a journey, you think that there's an end. There's a destination. And as Christians, what is our destination? Heaven, Heaven with God. Amen. All right. So the first, um, the verse that we read today was 2 Peter 3.18. So turn in your Bible so we can read while they're getting the PowerPoint working. 2 Peter 3.18. When you're there, say amen. 2 Peter 3.18. When you're there, say amen. Amen. All right. So let us read. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. From the moment that we are introduced to God till we die, we are on a journey. And we should be, according to this verse, walking and evolving with Christ. There is a place in the Bible where I believe that the Christian journey is the best summarized. And that is found in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. In Mount of Blessing, page 13, throughout the Beatitudes, there is an advancing line of Christian experience. According to this, there is an advancing line, a growth that should be happening. And I believe that the Beatitudes are a necessity for us to study. In the Signs of the Times, January 15, 1880, it says, Upon this occasion, Christ most clearly revealed the character of his kingdom and the principles which should govern it given in the Beatitudes. In this discourse was embodied the principles of the moral law, lying down at once the whole sum and substance of the plan of true religion in specifying the kind of characters which would be essential for the subject of his kingdom. According to this, the reason why the Beatitudes are so important is because they show us the moral law and they show us the plainest truths of true religion. And they are the characters that we need to be in heaven. So if you think about it, the Beatitudes are not a recommendation. They are essential for our lives. There are nine Beatitudes in Matthew 5. What are the principles of each one is going to be the point of this sermon. So let us pray. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for um, this wonderful Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you send the Holy Spirit on all, everyone here, including myself, Lord, so that it's your words that are being heard and not my own. And Lord, uh, may you give me a peace as I go through this so I don't get nervous. And Lord, may the message of the Beatitudes reach my hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let us start with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first beatitude, and it is the first step, I believe, in our Christian journey. What does it mean when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit? 
And I believe that the story that best describes this is found in Luke 18, verses 10 through 13. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smot upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one of the two characters in this Bible verse do you believe realized he was poor in spirit? Was it the Pharisee or was it the publican? It was the publican. According to these verses, being poor in spirit means that we need to realize our spiritual state so that we can be blessed. In Mount of Blessings, page 7 and 8, it says, Those whose heart have been moved by the convicting spirit of God see that there is nothing good in themselves. They see that all they have ever done is mingled with self and sin. Like the poor publican, they stand afar off, not daring to lift up so much as their eyes to heaven, and cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The first step in our Christian journey is to realize how helpless we are without God, and to realize how sinful we are. In other words, in modern terms, the first step in our Christian experience is to not be in denial. Talking about being in denial... In Revelations, they described um, the different eras of the churches, and I believe there were seven churches. Which church do we represent in this era? The seventh. And what was his name? Laodicea. Laodicea. So we're going to be reading Revelations 3, 14 to 22, and we're going to find out what was the sin of this last day church. Revelations 3, 14 through 22. And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? What was the sin of the last day church? They were in denial of their current state. They did not see how spiritually lacking they were. The Laodiceans are just like the Pharisee in the story we read. Let us pray that we can wake up and be like the publican who realized his emotional state or his state. But fortunately, if we continue reading in the same verses, we find the cure. All right. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white remnant that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayst see. We need God to show us our wretched state, because only he with the Holy Spirit can show us where we are spiritually. There is no one who does good. Don't disillude yourself in thinking that there is one who does good. If we continue reading, we will find out what is the gift when we realize that we need God's help. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and that sat down with my father in his throne. The gift of seeing how poor we are is the right to sit with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what was the principle of this first beatitude? 
The principle of the first beatitude is that we need to realize our spiritual need. And you can see that I put um, the first step, or I put the steps, the gift, and then the principle behind it. So our prize, if we realize that we need Christ, is that our prize will be the kingdom of heaven. Now let's move on to the second beatitude. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. After we realize our sinful state, can you give me that back? All right. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is the second beatitude. After we realize our sinful state, which was the first beatitude, we should be brought to true mourning because of sin. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, we find the causes of mourning. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. In this verse, we find out that there are two types of grief. There is a godly grief, and there's a worldly grief. And here we're going to talk about the difference between true grief and worldly grief. According to this verse, true grief has three characteristics. It will lead to repentance. It will lead us to salvation and to have no regret. While the worldly, mean, the worldly mourning will lead to the opposite. It will end in death. In the, so in the Bible, there's a story of two characters that went through grieving, but only one of them had genuine repentance. Think of the story of Judas and Peter. Their sins were very similar. Both of them sinned against God. One of them betrayed him, and the other one rejected him in front of people. They both mourned for what they did. Peter was incredibly sorrowful, and he even ran away. And Judas was so torn that he even fell at Jesus' feet. But which one truly repented? Which one had godly mourning? And which one had earthly? Peter had the true mourning. Peter repented and he was saved. When we realize our spiritual state, we will be brought to mourning. In great controversy, it says, those who walk in the shadow of Calvary's cross, they feel that it was their own sin which caused the agony that broke the heart of the Son of God. And this thought will lead them to self-shame. Those who live nearest to Jesus discern most clearly the frailty and sinfulness of humanity. And their only hope is in the merit of a crucified and risen Savior. If we walk in Calvary, we will realize that it was our own sin that led to Jesus being on that cross. And we realize that our only hope is in God. All right, now we're going to continue on the, the same beatitude. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In Psalms 51, 17, it says why. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. God has promised to comfort our sorrow. And we know that he will because sorrow is not going to last forever. There is going to come a day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelations 21.4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying, nor shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. One day we will be free from sin's influences. 
So what was the principle of the second beatitude? It was that sin should cause us to grieve and to crave the new world that God has given us to be free from sin. All right, now we'll move on to the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now I think about in today's society, when we think of meekness, we usually think of someone who lets someone walk all over him, who has no backbone. It's a very negative, ter- it's a very negative connotation in modern society. But in biblical, in the scripture, meekness means something completely different. So we're going to find out what does meekness mean in the Bible and also from the spirit of prophecy. In Mount of Blessings, it says, Throughout the Beatitudes, there is an advancing line of Christian experience. Those who have felt their need of Christ, those who have mourned because of sin and have sat with Christ in the school of affliction will learn meekness from their divine teacher. Can you see it? All right. The third step in our Christian journey is to learn meekness. In Matthew eleven seventeen, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. All right, I'll read it for you. I'll read it myself. In Matthew eleven nineteen, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Here we find that God is meek. Should we not be the same as God? And I want to ask you a question. Did God let everyone walk over him? Did they let him push him around? No. So clearly meekness does not mean what we think it means in modern society. Amount of blessings, page 17, I think it describes best what does meekness truly mean. He who beholds, and since you're not here, I'll try to speak out there. All right. He who beholds Christ in his self-denial, his lowliness of heart will be constrained to say, as did Daniel, when he beheld one like the Son of Man, My comeliness was turned in me into corruption. Human nature is ever struggling for expression, ready for contest. But he who learns of Christ is emptied of self, of pride, of love of supremacy, and there is silence in the soul. Self is yielded to the disposal of the Holy Spirit. Then we are not anxious to have the highest place. We have no ambition to crowd and to elbow ourselves into notice but we feel that our highest place is at the feet of our Savior. We look to Jesus, waiting for his hand to lead, listening for his voice to guide. It is the love of self that destroys our peace. A godly meekness, I believe, is what gives us this peace. As Christians, we are called to be empty of self and to let Christ lead in our lives because it is love of self that destroys. And Christ did not come here to this planet to destroy us. He came to seek and save that which was lost. From this beatitude, what was the reward for letting Christ lead? It was to inherit the earth. And not this earth, but the one that is to come. In Psalms 37, 11, it says, But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The earth that we will inherit for being meek is a land of peace. The principle of this beatitude is to let Jesus lead our lives and to be empty of self. So now we're going to go into the fourth beatitude, which is the fourth step in our journey. 
Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. After we have realized our spiritual need, after we have mourned for our sinful state, after we have learned to be more selfless and to let Christ lead, then we can gain an even greater desire to know more about God. And that is what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. First, I would like to focus on only one aspect of what is righteousness in the Bible, because there's a lot of them. So I just picked probably something that's the simplest that we as Adventists can agree on. Psalms 119, 172. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. So here we find out that the standard that God gave us at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, are righteous. And as Christians, we are called to follow Christ in his righteousness. The law is righteous. It is God's character. But how can we fulfill this law? In Romans 13.10, it says, Love is the fulfillment of the law. So in other words, if we have love, genuine love, we will be able to fulfill the law. In Isaiah 54.17, it says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So where does our righteousness come from? It comes from Jesus. It comes from Christ. Because we are not righteous ourselves. Jesus is our living bread and water. He is our righteousness. And he has promised that if we are hungry for righteousness, he will fill us. In John 6, it says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. And he that believes on me shall never thirst. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. According to this last section, if we are truly hungering and thirsting after God, he will fill us and it will bring us to everlasting life. And this gift of righteousness is not something that we can work for. It is something that is given to us as a gift. In Isaiah 55, 1, it says, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. He that has no money, come ye buy and eat. Ye come buy wine and milk without money and without price. To be hunger, to have hunger and to thirst after righteousness is a necessity for us as Christians. And I want to ask you guys, are you hungering and thirsting after God? Are you like Jacob? Are you clinging on to Jesus, refusing to let go? Are you searching the scriptures to learn more of God? Are you? Because if you are, hallelujah. In Mount of Blessings, page 17, it says, If you have a sense of need in your soul, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, this is an evidence that Christ has wrought upon your heart in order that he may be sought to do unto you, uh, unto do for you through the endowment of the Holy Spirit, those things which it is impossible for you to do yourself. It is when we are hungry that God can help us. Um, we need not ask to quench our thirst at a shallow stream, for the great fountain is just above us, of whose abundant waters we may freely drink if we will rise a little higher in the pathway of faith. Notice what it said at the end. It said, if we rise a little higher in the pathway of faith. The principle of this beatitude, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, is that they are never satisfied for where they are spiritually. 
They always want to grow more and more into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So now we're going to move on to the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall get what? What will they get if they are merciful? They will get mercy themselves. I think this one is pretty self-explanatory of all the beatitudes. You will reap what you sow. When we are called, we are called to follow Christ, and Christ was indeed merciful. When we, when Adam and Eve sinned, did God show mercy to them? Yes, He didn't wipe us out; He showed us mercy. In Proverbs eleven twenty five b, it says, "He that waters shall be watered himself." So let us remember this verse as we go about our daily lives, that we should be showing mercy to all that we see, to the ones that are easy to show mercy like our family, our pets, our, fa our um, co-workers, to the harder ones in society, like the druggies, the murderers, and the thieves. Because the mercy that we show to our fellow human beings, if we do this, God will show mercy back to us. It says in Mount of Blessings, page 24, and in the hour of final need, the merciful shall find refuge in the mercy of the compassionate Savior and shall be received unto everlasting habitation. We are counting that in the last day, God will show us the final mercy of taking us away from this world. The principle of this beatitude, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy, is that we should be showing compassion and love for our fellow humans to show others and to do good. The sixth beatitude, I think, is one of the hardest. Blessed are the poor in heart, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. On this one, the one that strikes me the most is not the blessed, but the gift that they get. What do they get if they are pure in heart? They get to see God. And I think that all of us want to see God face to face one day. Amen? Amen. So whatever the prerequisite must be for us to see God face to face, it must be very important. In Mount of Blessings, page 24 to 26, it says, Unto the city of God there will enter nothing that defiles. All who are to be dwellers there will have become pure in heart. In one who is learning of Jesus, there will be manifest a growing distaste for the careless manners, unseemly language, and coarse thought. When Jesus abides in the heart, there will be purity and refinement of thought and manner. But the words of Jesus, blessed are the pure in heart, have a deeper meaning. Not merely pure in the sense in which the world describes purity, free from that which is sensual, pure from lust, but true in the hidden purposes and motives of the soul, free from pride and self-seeking, humble, unselfish, and childlike. To me, I think that the hardest one in here, what is true purity, is true in the hidden purposes and motives of the soul. How easy is it for us to change our motives of doing things? It's not easy. In fact, I don't think we can change our motives on our own. Only God can do it, because motives are very hard to change. Francisco de la Roche Farclod said something very interesting. We would frequently be ashamed of our good deeds if people saw all the motives that produced them. Just because you are doing good deeds, it doesn't mean you're doing good. Remember the story of the sheep and the goats. The goats thought that they were doing the right thing. But what do you think were mo their motive was? 
Do you think their motive was pure? Probably not. It is your motives that matter in what you do. Why do you do the things you do? Is it a pure motive? This pureness of heart can only occur if we have done the previous steps with God. If we have realized our spiritual need. If we have mourned for sin and confessed. If we have allowed God to lead our lives. And if we have hungered to know more and more about God. And if we have shown mercy to others. In Mounts of Blessings, page 27, it says, The pure in heart live as in the visible presence of God. Are you living your life as if God is here? When you, everything you think and say, are you thinking, I am living in the presence of God? Are you? Whatever you do, whatever you think, I want you guys to remember, you are called to live in the presence of God. What was the prize of us if we were pure in heart? Do you guys remember what it was? That you will see God. Who in the Bible do we know saw God? Enoch, Moses, and Moses is the one I want us to focus on. In, in Exodus 43, 6-7, Moses was finally permitted to look at God. Obviously not in the face, but he was able to see him. Notice what was written as this happened. It happened in Exodus 43, 6-7. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. What a beautiful way they described God. I find it interesting that when Moses was finally permitted to see God, he did not describe he was tall, he was very lightful, he had long hair. No, what he used to describe was that he was compassionate, he was gracious, he was abounding in love, Forgiving wickedness, but not clearing the guilty. Seeing God, to me, appears to be seeing his character. Let us pray that God is the one who is dwelling in our hearts, so that one day soon we can see God face to face. In 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, it says, For now we are seen through a, dark gla a glass and darkly, but then soon face to face. One day we will see God face to face. So I pray that we are helping, we are allowing God to change us, to make us pure in heart. So what is the principle I want you to remember from this beatitude? It is this one. Live as if you were in the very presence of God. We're now going to move on to the seventh beatitude. And it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In the Greek, I put here um, the Greek word for peacekeeper. Is it there? The peacekeeper. It is pronounced irenopoios. And the definition is that you are peaceful in your character and in your motives, that you love peace, and you are a peacemaker. And another one that I didn't put here, that the word also means that you are a lover of peace. You love peace. According to this definition, our motives with what we do should be peaceful. Remember the lesson of the previous beatitude, the pure in spirit, or the pure in heart? Only God can make us pure in our motives. In Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is necessary for our future in heaven. I mean, think about it. What if you're not at peace with God? Do you think you're going to go to heaven? 
Probably not. And according to Romans 5.1, the one we just read, it says that peace comes through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why it's important for us to be peaceful is because God is a God of peace. Isaiah 9.6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what is his last title? Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And when we follow Jesus' example honestly, people in this world should be able to know that we are the sons of God, which was the blessing of this beatitude. Now, what is the, pri the, the biblical principle of being a true peacekeeper? Because there is such a thing as false peace. So we're going to go over Mount of Blessings because if I did it through the Bible, it would take too many verses. So I'm just going to summarize it here. But there were three main principles to being a peacekeeper. The first one is, he who is at peace with God and his fellow man cannot be made miserable. Envy will not be in his heart. Evil surmising will find no room there. Hatred cannot exist. The heart that is in harmony with God is a partaker of the peace of heaven and will diffuse its blessing influence on all around. The spirit of peace will rest like dew upon hearts, weary and troubled with worldly strife. The first principle, according to this, is that we would be in a godly harmony with God and man, and that it will bring blessings to the people around us. The second principle. The spirit of peace is evidence of their connection with heaven. The sweet savor of Christ surrounds them. The fragrance of the life, the loveliness of the character, reveal to the world the fact that they are children of God. Men take knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Our lives should show that we are with God. When someone looks at you, can they say what the woman said to Peter? I know you have been with Jesus. It was something that Peter could not hide. It was something that they knew. You have been with Jesus. The third principle. Where whoever by the quiet, uns unconscious influence of a holy life shall reveal the love of Christ, whether by word or deed, shall lead another to renounce sin and yield his heart to God, is a peacemaker. The third principle of being a peacemaker means that we are leading others to God. And think about it. Does God give us ultimate peace? Amen. Because we're not going to find peace on earth. We're not going to find peace with the ruler of this world. So if we are truly a peacekeeper, we will want to bring others so they can know what peace is like. So to recap, the three principles of, the, of this beatitude is the first one is we're living in harmony with God and our fellow man. That our lives are showing to the world who God is and that we are leading others to Christ. Let us strive so that we can keep this heavenly peace in our lives. The eighth beatitude, will someone like to read it for me? It's there on the screen. Anyone like to read it? Amen. The eighth step in the Christian journey is blessed are we when we are persecuted. What causes this persecution? In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, 
Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Did this verse say some may suffer persecution? It said all will suffer persecution. Why is this persecution inevitable? In Proverbs 29.10, it says, The bloodthirsty hate a man of integrity. What do you think that means? And again, since I like parallels, there is another story in the Bible who describes this. Think of Cain and Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? And what I love is that the Bible actually tells us why. In 1 John 3.12, it says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. When we are living according to God's will, we're living contrary to what this world thinks is right. In John 15, 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The reason why we are hated in this world is because we are, our characters are being molded for a different one. In fact, the Bible says that not being persecuted is a bad thing. In Luke 6, 26, it says, Woe to you when, en when everybody speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I want you to think about that one. Woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. What an interesting thought. If no one is talking bad about your faith, about what you believe, are you truly showing your faith in your life? Do people know that you have been with God? What I believe is the principle of this beatitude is, because we are following God step by step, our lives are a constant rebuke to sin. And this is what leads to persecution. They're not going to persecute us because we're doing wrong, but because we are doing right. Now for the last beatitude. You guys are going to use your hands. You're going to be tactile learners now. Turn to your Bibles to Matthew 5, and we're going to be reading verses 11 and 12. So when you get there, say amen. amen. Okay, so just give me a moment before I can get there. All right, would someone like to read it, or would I? Do you like to read it, Jordan? Amen. All right. This last beatitude to me seems very similar to the previous beatitude. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. But there is something very different about the last beatitude. As far as I can tell, and I've read it several times, this is the only beatitude with a command. And what is the command in this beatitude? Rejoice and be glad. We are called to rejoice in persecution. For great is our reward in heaven. Again, I'm going to ask you, what is our ultimate goal? Be to be with Jesus. And where is Jesus? In heaven. In heaven. Amen. To spend eternity with God should be the goal of every Christian. Persecution for righteousness is a very good thing. 
First Peter 4, 12 through 14, it says something very similar to the Beatitude we just read. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice, as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceedingly joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, God is glorified. We need to be happy because according to this verse, it is because the spirit of God is resting on us. There should be nothing else that gives us joy than to know that God is resting on us. So what is the lesson of this last beatitude? We should be rejoicing in our trials because that means that we are following the path of the prophets, the martyrs, and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for great is our reward in heaven. So now we're going to do some food for thought. I want you guys to think about this. In the seventh volume of the Testament, it says, Throughout all time, the words that Christ spoke from the Mount of Beatitudes will retain their power. Every sentence is a jewel from the treasure house of truth. The principles enunciated in this discourse are for all ages and for all men. Through faith in him, everyone can reach the standard held up in these words. So with God's help, with having the faith of Jesus, we can reach the standards that were in these previous nine Beatitudes. In fact, we are called to live up to them. In the Signs of the Times, 1896, it said, Christ had presented the same principles on the Mount of Beatitudes as he had on Mount Sinai. He had said that on the principle of love to God and to our neighbor hung all the law and the prophets. So think about it. What Jesus preached on the Mount of Blessings was the same thing he taught the Israelites in the Mount of Sinai. The principle is the same. In fact, I want to say that the, the Beatitudes are the spiritual condition we need to be into so that we can keep the commandments of God truly. In the Review and Herald, it says, Leading us to the Mount of Beatitudes, he will strengthen our vision by presenting before us truths of the greatest importance. We need to study for ourselves what these Beatitudes are because the principles I put there was from what I got from my own study. You yourselves need to go into your Bibles and find out what the principles are how God leads you. Now I would like us to recap all the nine Beatitudes. I have put there a chart so you can see all the nine Beatitudes. I hope it's big enough so you guys can read. So I'll be reading the, mostly from the principles, but I'll be taking some of the titles as well. Our Christian journey begins when we realize our spiritual need. In our helplessness, we will realize how much we need Jesus. And as we spend time with God, we realize how sinful we are. This godly mourning will lead to our repentance. We will begin to desire to be where God is, away from the sins of this earth. We will allow Jesus complete control of our lives. The closer we go to Christ, the more we realize that it is not close enough. We want to grow closer still. The closer we are to Christ, the more we will care for our fellow humans. We will show them God's character in our lives. And with God's grace, we can lead them to salvation and peace. We are living in the presence of God, in harmony with him. We will show this world the difference between truth and error, and as a consequence, we will be persecuted. Yet despite all the hate that we will receive, we will be glad, 
because great is our reward in heaven. Yes, you may be obeying the Ten Commandments in theory, but remember what I said previously. The principles of the Beatitudes are the same as the principles of the Ten Commandments. So now I want to ask you, are you living spiritually the principles of the Beatitudes? Do you realize how sinful you are without God? Do you truly mourn for the results of sin? Are you meek biblically? Does God make the decisions or are you making the decisions? Are you spiritually starving and reading and talking with God as much as you can? Or are you wasting time, earning money, getting titles, watching TV, sleeping, or even doing good works? Are you pure in heart? Are you spending enough time with Jesus that his character is beginning to rub off on you? Are you living in harmony with him? Or are you living in harmony with this world? Are you a peacekeeper? Or are you a fault finder? Are you being persecuted for righteousness sake? Or are you avoiding sharing your faith because you're afraid of losing status, friends? Or are you living your life so that no one even knows that you are a Christian? Are you joyful in your trials and tribulations? I hope that you are somewhere in this journey because remember, and we're going to go back to the quote I read at the beginning, Signs of the Times, January 15, 1880. Upon this occasion, Christ most clearly revealed the character of his kingdom and the principles which should govern it, given in the Beatitudes. In this discourse was, embo was embodied the principles of the moral law, laying down at once the whole sum and substance of the plan of true religion and specifying the kind of characters which would be essential to the subject of his kingdom. They are the characters we need for heaven. Lord, help me, for I am a sinner. All growth requires work. And now I'm going to give you a little homework because I think that we learn the best when we study for ourselves. I'm not going to be the one grading it. It's just between you and God. In manuscripts it says, let us take the Beatitudes one by one and learn from God's word what they mean to us individually. So this week in your personal worship, I want you to study the Beatitudes one by one. And I want you to see how that applies to your life. How can you apply it to yours? And with God's help, have him change you from the inside out. And with God's help to understand how the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes are overlapping. Remember to always start your personal worship with, ask and you shall receive. So let us pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this wonderful day that you have given us, Lord. The Sabbath is a day of rest, and it is the most blessed day of the week for me. Lord, I pray that for the rest of the Sabbath day that we spend it growing closer to you, knowing more about how we can please you, Lord. And Lord, I ask that this week that we will grow even closer to you by studying the standards of heaven, Lord, and trusting that you will change us because we cannot change ourselves. And Lord, thank you so much that you answer when we call. And Lord, thank you so much that you are coming again. Help us to be ready so that we can be able to see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.